Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Support for this podcast comes from the law firm Fenwick, supporting their clients' passion for tech and life sciences innovation, online at fenwick.com. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. As COVID cases skyrocket, California's top doctor, Mark Galley, said there are no plans to issue another statewide stay-at-home order for now. But this weekend, strict limits on certain businesses kicked in for 11 counties around the state. The restrictions say businesses like restaurants, gyms, and churches can only operate outdoors. In San Diego, four restaurants and gyms are suing to halt those restrictions on behalf of fellow businesses. A hearing on that is scheduled for tomorrow. President-elect Joe Biden has pledged to end the Trump administration's travel ban on several Muslim-majority nations, including Iran. The impact could be big here in California, home to the largest Iranian community in the country. Kikuidi's Farida Javala Romero spoke with an Iranian-American doctor near Fresno, who has tried for years to bring his father to live with him. In March, Armendari was consumed with worry. His father, also a doctor, got coronavirus from a patient in Tehran and was hospitalized. He's 81 years old, and that's the biggest risk factor for COVID-19. But Derry lives in Visalia, more than 7,000 miles away. That distance compounded his fear. He couldn't just go care for his dad. Uh, that was a very tough time. It was very scary. Darrow and his sister are both naturalized U.S. citizens. Five years ago, they applied for green cards for their parents. Their mother's was approved in 2016, but their father's got stuck in limbo after President Donald Trump issued the travel ban during his first days in office. It's been a burden, a huge burden on our shoulders, on our minds. Yeah, it's been very difficult for all of us. Trump invoked national security to bar travel to the U.S. for most people from some Muslim-majority nations. But critics challenged the ban in court as discriminatory and racist. An amended version didn't go into full effect until December 2017, after the Supreme Court allowed it to move forward. And earlier this year, Trump added more African and Asian nations, for a total of 13 the harm that it has done to the reputation of the country and to the people and communities it's impacted it is so immeasurable. Max Wilson is an attorney with the National Immigration Law Center, which sued to end the travel ban. He says the impact goes way beyond the more than 41,000 visas the U.S. State Department has denied under the ban. Every child that you keep separate from their parent, every person who misses a wedding and every person who misses a job opportunity 
those don't just hurt the person involved. They hurt the people that would benefit from being reunited with their family members. They hurt the, the places that these people would end up working. Biden could undo the travel ban just the way Trump started it, with an executive order. That would trigger a reversal at the State Department, Customs and Border Protection, and other federal agencies. Abed Ayub, with the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, says if Biden ends the travel ban as promised, it would signal the start of a new era on how this country treats immigrants, including protecting dreamers and reuniting separated migrant families. By overturning the ban, which is the lowest hanging fruit, he can signal to the communities that, you know what, I'm, I take immigration seriously. I take your concerns seriously. Dr. Armand Derry says... Getting rid of the ban would lift a weight off his family and many others, and it would help ease the feeling the travel ban gave him, that he wasn't welcome in America. It's going to be a huge relief for people who are affected by this unjust and discriminative act. It means a lot for us. His dad has recovered from covid now Derry hopes he can finally come live with him in Visalia. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala Romero. California voters shot down Proposition 25 on Election Day. The referendum would have banned cash bail. CAP Radio Scott Rod breaks down how it failed and what lies ahead for the industry. The California bail bondsman lives to see another day. Temporarily, we're feeling pretty good. Topo Padilla is president of the Golden State Bail Agents Association and owns a bail bond shop in downtown Sacramento. His father started the business in 1979. That 40-year run would have ended if voters hadn't stepped in. They saw that the fact that a judge would have the sole decision on releasing somebody from jail was not going to work. Proposition 25 asked voters to overturn legislation passed two years ago that would have ended cash bail. In its place, judges would have used an algorithm to help them decide if a defendant should be released before trial. Alicia Varani is a criminal justice researcher at UCLA. She says that created controversy because the data used could be biased to begin with. If we're inputting past arrests into an algorithm and we know that law enforcement targets certain communities, then really it's only going to be a reflection of police behavior and not actual behavior of the individual. Varani says this resulted in some strange bedfellows opposing Prop 25. Prosecutors and bail agents found themselves fighting alongside some reform advocates like the NAACP and Human Rights Watch. They wanted to see a more robust overhaul of pretrial detention. But Senator Bob Hertzberg, who authored the original legislation to ban cash bail, says this was a missed opportunity to make strides towards a more just system. I had no regrets. Getting the law passed in the way we passed it, in my judgment, was the best we could do. He says there's still opportunity for lawmakers to chip away at cash bail in California, but acknowledges there may be some hesitation after voters voiced opposition. If the legislature doesn't act, reform could come from the bench. All eyes are on a petition pending before the state Supreme Court that argues judges should consider a defendant's ability to pay before requiring bail. For the California Report, I'm Scott Rod in Sacramento. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa Dirfetah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. This weekend, the L.A. Times devoted its entire Saturday page of letters to the editor to Trump supporters. L.A. Times editorial page editor Sewell Chan joins me now. And Sewell, you were busy on Twitter this weekend defending against quite a bit of negative reaction. Were you surprised by how people responded? You know, we we knew it could be a little bit controversial, uh, but we also felt that we were going into it eyes wide open. You know, 30 percent of Los Angeles County, the largest county in the nation, voted for President Trump. Um, this is a region and this is a state that's known for being pretty liberal and pretty progressive. But I think I was trying to we were trying to show that, you know, there's still a lot of uh, a lot, not only a lot of conservative voters, but a lot of Trump support, even in, in places that see themselves as being pretty liberal. Walk us through some of what was in these letters. Who wrote in? What would people who read these learn? if anything. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to be very clear that we edit all our letters and we fact check them and make sure they're from real people. And we, you know, obviously did not run any letters from um, avowed extremists. The letters reflect a whole variety of viewpoints. Some of them were very annoyed at the Democrats. Others believed in low taxes and low regulation. Um, They were not all from white men. Um, Several were from women or from people of color. And they had different reasons for supporting President Trump, um, reasons that they believed were were valid and legitimate. So, you know, there was a deluge of criticism here. I think we can agree. What do you say to critics who say you gave your megaphone, this powerful platform, to people who have been heard loud and clear for the last four years during President Trump's tenure in office? I think that's a fair criticism, but I would say two things to that. First of all, the opinion pages of the Los Angeles Times have consistently run very strong criticisms of Trump on a weekly, if not daily basis for coming on five years now. Our editorial board in particular has been warning about him since 2015. We published two series, Our Dishonest President and Beating Trump. We called for his conviction and removal from office. And we endorsed Joe Biden earlier than any other major newspaper. So I would argue that, you know, we've been listening to our audience very carefully. I am uncertain, Lily, about the argument that we've been hearing from Trump voters for four years. You know, I think there's some validity to that. Um, I, I, I hear from people who feel exasperated that for the last four or five years, they've had to listen to people who support Trump. And sometimes some of those people saying very, very ugly things. I'm sympathetic to that. But I also felt that, you know, with this election having been called, with this election having been won by Joe Biden, I wanted to understand the minority of LA Times readers who do support Trump. They're a vocal minority. And they are often complaining that the LA Times is too liberal, too one-sided, doesn't give them their say. I'm in a tough spot here. I'm trying to balance 
not balanced in a in a fifty fifty way, not mm-hmm. you know engage in both sides, not false mm-hmm. equivalency. I'm not saying that there's two sides are equivalent, but there is a sizable minority of our readership and of California that really really believes in Trump, and I think it behooves anyone who cares about our democracy to understand where those people are coming from. And you just laid out, you know, the record of journalism that you have done on this presidency. And I want to read back one of the people who wrote in, Greg Winters from Malibu, said, stop the constant leftist haranguing that is not reaching people who voted for Trump and other conservatives. So you have this backlash from conservatives as well. Yeah. And one of the things I'm really worried about, Lily, is that, you know, we are in a time when there isn't, as President Obama recently said, there isn't a shared agreement on what the truth is and on what facts are. And to me, that's the most important and urgent problem of all. You know, look, I'm under no illusions. Mainstream media, a lot of mainstream media, I I can't speak for all of it, but certainly institutions like the LA Times, we know that we're reaching a mostly liberal readership, but we don't want to reject the conservative readers that we do have, right? They still are interested in mainstream media. They still are interested in the objective presentation of news. And they are facing a lot of liberal opinion. And I think, you know, letters like the one that you cited, you know, show that among people who are critical of the media, some feel that we're, that haranguing isn't helping. And I actually think that's a really, really important point to understand. Like lecturing people or, or, or kind of berating them is not the best way to necessarily persuade them. And, and what struck me about the LA Times decision to do this was that it happened on a weekend when you had prominent Trump supporters in the conservative media universe really pushing parlor for people who are mad at sites like Twitter for cracking down on misinformation. Parler was the most downloaded app last week. And what worries me as a journalist is it feels like, you know, to your point, it feels like people with differing opinions have fewer and fewer places to talk to each other and to hear from each other. I totally agree. And, you know, I would like the Los Angeles Times letters page to be a forum, to be a public square that lets reasonable discourse occur. We would obviously never run a letter from, you know, an extremist, uh, anti-Semite, um, I, you know, uh, someone who's who's avowedly racist. But I think sometimes on Twitter, I'm hearing, you know, these kind of equivalencies that anyone who voted for Donald Trump is either tolerant of a of white supremacy or or is themselves a white supremacist. You could argue the tolerant point, but I find it hard to argue the latter point that everyone who voted for Trump must be a white supremacist. That just doesn't comport with the data, which show that Trump's share of votes among minority communities rose this election from the last one. Regarding your point on Parla, I I completely agree, Lily. We knew from 2016, if not earlier, that much of America is in its own information silo, its filter bubbles. We learned about that. I'm not sure that we have necessarily worked to to fix that problem. And I'm not sure it's, it's a very, very hard problem to address. If anything, like the opinion team I represent is pretty liberal. Uh, You know, to make it 100% liberal would scare me a little bit because, A, we're not challenging our readers with beliefs that don't already confirm their worldview. But we're also, in doing so, we would also be sort of saying that if you're not liberal, you, you shouldn't even, like, try to ever read us. And I just don't think that's the right way to go. All right. Sewell Chan, editorial page editor at the LA Times. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us. Thank you, Lily. 
And that is the California Report for this Monday, November 16th, a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from California Healthcare Foundation, ensuring the voices of Californians are heard in California's decisions about healthcare on the web at chcf.org/voices. The law firm Perkins Coie, a trusted legal advisor to innovative companies and industry leaders throughout California and the world. Learn more at perkinscoie.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together. On the web at schmidtfutures.com. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.